Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Welcome back to Mojovia. Dave and I hope your modeling life has been full of bench time and scale modeling goodness since our last episode. We have a ton of listener mail and feedback to get through along with our special segment and some heartfelt shout outs once we get to the other side. So let's get this kit out of the box and on the way with episode 23 of Plastic Model Mojo. Well, Dave, we're back for more. How you doing? I'm not doing too bad. Uh, it's raining hard outside, but I'm nice and dry in my model room and doing okay. How about yourself? Ah, not too bad. What you been up to other than your bench stuff and your general uh, scale model sphere? Well, uh, you know, uh, obviously it's it's starting to turn fall, so I'm spending a lot of time, uh, you know, getting getting stuff outside, picking up leaves and stuff like that. Uh, I'm noticing that uh, model release announcements and new tools and all that sort sort of stuff are starting to fall thicker now and. Uh, I'll tell you what, I think that's going to gonna put a pinch on the wallet sooner or later. How about you? Well, you know, we discussed the shelves of doom last time, and uh, I kind of, we, we talked a little bit about my KV-85 project, that forlorn project, as a possible shelf of doom re- recovery for myself. And I started poking around, and I discovered that Tiger Model Designs, who made that T-34 kit I bought, that I talked about last time uh, is offering a corrected turret for the trumpeter kit. And they, they credit their master makers on there. And the master for that kit was Mike Bishop. Oh, really? Does that ring a bell? Yes, it does. Yeah. I've friended him real quick on Facebook. Cause I mean, I mean, how many Mike Bishops are into Soviet armor out there? Right. right? Probably not a whole lot, but anyway, uh, he friended me back. We had a conversation. Like I said, Mike Bishop had mastered that turret for, for Tiger Model Designs, and Mike was the proprietor of MB Models back in the mid-80s until, I don't know, late 90s or something like that. Yeah. And he was kind of a uh, a resin kit and conversion pioneer, really. Yeah. He was one of the, at least in the United States, he was one of the first ones to get out there, and I had a lot of his stuff, and I've built a fair amount of it. Uh, And, I don't know, we we just had a chat, and I guess one thing he was, uh, was enjoying was how just about everything he did 25 years ago is now available in plastic. Yeah. Almost all of it. Yep. We live in the golden age of modeling, my friend. Yeah, we sure do. Yeah. So that's what I've been up to. That's something noteworthy. That's not, not a modeling project. Yeah. Well, I I do hope that we'll hear more on the KV 85 later, but uh, for right now, what's your modeling fluid? I picked up another bottle of Basil Hayden's at the, at the local proprietor. Good choice. Uh, back back last weekend, I showed it. That's what I was drinking during our Facebook flurry there for the weekend. Uh, sure. You know, it's from, from Frankfurt, Claremont, Kentucky. Uh, 80 proof, so it's kind of tame. Some, think, some people think it's watery, but I, I think it's quite nice, actually. So I'm enjoying it. So now, does, is, do, do, are you crediting the Basil Hayden with your uh, sudden flurry of uh, the move toward the finish on the Bofors? 
No, I can't say that, but it's uh, certainly helped it along, I guess, but I can't credit it for it. I've just been persistent and, uh, and really enjoying the work I've been doing. So we'll get we'll get into that later. What are you, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I am drinking. Not yet. Well, I am now. The Reverend. It's a Belgian-style quadruple ale out of Avery Brewing Company in Boulder, Colorado. Hmm, that's not bad. But not bad. Um, it's got... Uh, Trying to figure out what that flavor is. Uh, probably says it on the can. It probably does, and that's where I was going to cheat and look. Malted barley, that's what it is. Malted barley and dark Belgian candy sugar. Uh, so as you can imagine, it tastes smoky and it tastes sweet. And it's it's really good. I like this. First couple of sips have left a good impression. Now, being... Uh, a Belgian style quadruple. It's dark, and it's also about ten percent alcohol by volume, so a little stronger than your average beer, but not unpleasantly alcoholic at all. Well, I may have to give that one a shot. Yep, uh, I'll report back later in the episode. All right. Well, man, the mailbag is splitting at the seams. Good. Good to hear. First up is Alex Restrepo from Louisville, Kentucky. We know who you are. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Dave and Mike. I like how I gave you top billing there. <laughs> yes, I do too. I have to send him a check. I recently had the pleasure of assisting one of our club members donate an amazing UPS, United Parcel Service, Boeing 747-8 diorama for display at the maintenance facility here in Louisville. It got me wondering about what other modelers do with their models when the needs arise to make room for new displays. As always... Thanks for a great cast and keep on modeling. Well, that's a good question. Yeah. I know in my youth, they used to fall to uh, BB guns and firecrackers. Yeah. Lighter fluid also. Yes. Um, bullet holes from candles and unfolded paper clips. Okay. Now, I've never known that trick. You mean heating it up and poking them through. Gotcha. Yes. There, there you go. So, I don't know. I've I've... Maybe that's the only blessing of my slow build paces. I've never had a, a a a glut of models. Now I've had a couple get damaged. I end up salvaging a few things that might be useful later and just bending the thing. But uh, right. I don't know. Might be one for the listeners to answer. What do you guys do out there in the model space for uh, when you get too many models? What do you do, Dave? Do you get too many models? While while my pace may not be quite as glacial as yours, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a fairly slow builder. I have plenty of room, so I have not, you know, when I fill up a case, I go up to Ikea in Cincinnati and I buy another case. I just, you know, occasionally I've given one away. Uh, I have occasionally sent them off for uh, displays and they eventually return to me. Uh, in fact, the Oka that I finished at the beginning of the year is going to go out to Seattle for a display at a museum out there. And so I'm going to ship it out to Jim Bates and then it'll eventually return, I hope, hopefully in the same condition. But I haven't really encountered the problem, although I have because I've moved a couple of times over the years. I have had some destroyed and, and broken and, you know, you either salvage them or just bin them. And I did when I moved here two years ago from my previous house, I took a number of kits that were sitting in Tupperware in a damaged condition and just simply bend them because I realized I wasn't ever going to go back and 
and fix them. So, but yeah, no, I'd I'd like to hear what the members or what the listeners do with their models, other than just simply put them in a display case. Because somebody out there is running out of space. Absolutely. Just just not us yet. We don't know, Alex, but we'll find out. So stay tuned. Uh, we're hearing from Hector Cologne again out of Chicago. Butch O'Hare has a new website, uh, com. I had a look at it. It's, it's pretty nice. And he's also provided a nice link page for all the podcasts. So I know we appreciate it. And I'm sure Absolutely. everybody else out there podcasting for the scale modeling or scale modelers out there appreciate it at, as well. So we appreciate the links. So if you want to check out what's happening at IPMS Butch O'Hare, go to their website and check it out. It looks nice. That's fantastic. All right. Who else we got? Ed Olszewski from Syracuse, New York has a couple of questions. Do modelers use reference books they buy <laughs> when building models or they, or do they mostly, <laughs> I know, I know what you're laughing about, yeah. or do they mostly rely on internet search and sites like prime portal and the walk arounds available on scale mates buying reference books for each model could get pricey. So that's the first one. Uh, question two, I've heard the term paper panzer a number of times recently. Is this a term for a model of a world war two German tank that was designed, but never built, or is it, a reference to a paper model. I've seen both. Answer the second question first. It's easier. Yes. A paper panzer generally refers to a German prototype that uh, was either never built or maybe only went to a, a wooden mock-up or something like that. But uh, that's typically what that refers to. Though there are a lot of paper models out there, but that's a whole nother ball of wax. I guess yeah. you have to find a, uh, a paper model podcast. <laughs> I'm sure there will be one eventually. Well, back to his first question. Um, I'll let you go first because you laughed. <laughs> yes, I did. Now, keep in mind, I've been in modeling 40 years or so, back way back in the before times when it was just us and dinosaurs roaming the earth and frog kits. You didn't have the internet. So reference material was vitally important. Books and, and references were vitally important. So you bought a lot of them. In fact, my, my lovely better half, the model wife, uh, uh, has on a number of occasions accused me of not being a modeler, but a librarian who occasionally builds a model because I've got a ton of reference. But it's interesting that he brings this up because on the M30 build that I've been building, I've complained numerous times about the trumpeter instructions on the kit. And I would not, and of course, because it's an M30 artillery piece, it's not anything I've got any reference on, but I would not have been able to successfully uh, place all the parts and, and figure out what, uh, what Trumpeter was trying to tell me were it not for the links to walkarounds on Prime Portal. Uh, there are a couple of uh, really good walkarounds for this kit. And when I get to a stage in the instructions that I couldn't figure something out, I would hop on there and go find the relevant piece in real life and figure out, oh, that's what they're trying to tell me to, to do on the kit. And boy, is that great. Because the one downside of reference books is... You can't zoom in on the photo. You can't rotate the photo. There's always, the photo always is missing that one detail that you're trying to figure out. And out on the internet, 
because the storage capacity is endless, you're much more likely to find that exact reference shot and that exact look. So uh, not to sound too much like an old man and get off my lawn and stuff, but modelers today don't realize, I don't think a lot of them who've never grown up without the internet, realize how lucky they are in regard to research and reference. It's, it's, it, again, I say we live in the, in the golden age of modeling, and that is not just referring to all of the great kits and the fantastic molding technology. It's also referring to all of the information that's available to us. How about you? Well, I, I agree with that. And the fact that uh, he may be coming from a, a post-dawn of the internet kind of mindset, that's that's certainly true. I'm, I'm looking... I mean, right across my microphone is my bookcase, and there's <laughs> there's only one. <laughs> there's only one, but it's it's groaning, man. It's really groaning hard. I need I need a new one. There's a lot of books there from a prior episode. It's not taken up by a lot of magazines because I don't keep a lot of magazines anymore. But um, I guess what I would add to that is yes, folks still do use reference reference books, and it could get expensive. But I I, I typically don't buy when I pick a project. Right. I, I, I buy reference books that I, I think are going to be useful down the road or I, I, I find something interesting in them and I end up with a lot. But you, you kind of learn what's worthwhile and what's what's not. Uh, I've got a, a lot of books. I probably have every every book uh, on the Panther in print, I think, German Panther tank. And I pick up a lot of obscure things that are com- that come from other countries. I have a lot of books from that originate in Russia or or Poland, for example. Uh, but certainly, it can get expensive. But I, I just like books. I like being able to just grab it off the shelf and and have at it anytime I want. And you can do that with a net too. But I, I just like books, yeah. and I think they'll always have a place. I agree completely. I. They- my wife is not wrong when she accuses me of being a librarian who occasionally builds models. I love reference books. I love, and looking on the internet is great to see details or to do research or so. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not dissing it, but there is something about sitting down with a book, a reference book and leafing through it that it's an experience that the internet doesn't replicate. You know, again, maybe that's just being an, an old guy. Maybe that's just, you know, I came up with books. But now that raises an interesting question. I think you and I are the opposite in regard to books. I will get interested in a subject and then go buy books. And it sounds like you're more, I'm going to buy books. And then they lead me to my interest in the subject. Is that right? Well, I have interest in the subject already, but um, I, I can see myself gathering, gathering all this stuff up front. Or it's a subject I like. I'll, I'll get a book, uh, thinking I might want to build it. So yeah, a little bit of both. But one one thing I'll add is kind of <laughs> it's kind of the paradox of this. There, there I've got a project I'm planning for a, a, a BM13 Katusha rocket launcher system on a a ZIS six truck, the the Russian three axle yeah. truck. I've started collecting reference for this project. It's out there a little ways. I, I might start it next year. Probably will actually. But anyway, there's a, a, a publisher that make this small format book and they had one on the, on the BM 13 M Katusha 
on this truck on the platform I wanted to model. And I get the book and it is a rusted out, repaired, pieced together museum piece, outdoor display somewhere in Russia, really of limited use. By contrast to that, there's an equivalent vehicle in the Leningrad Artillery Museum that is almost an entirely original preserved piece. So in that case, Prime Portal wins over the book, hands down. So I think there's room for both. Absolutely. Moving on after we beat that one to death, I think. Chad Alexander. Chad is from Wichita, Kansas, and uh, he's been a registered nurse for about 15 years and just started modeling again. Now, this is a this is a reoccurring theme since uh, about February for, for reasons we all know. Uh, nursing school kind of ruined all his modeling activities, but COVID, our good friend COVID, Made it to where he had to find something to do, and he forgot how much he loved the hobby. Thanks again for the podcast. I listen every time I'm in the car. Uh, but the crux of his his uh, listener mail is, P.S., thank you for the UMM USA reference. A drug habit would have been cheaper. <laughs> yeah, but but a, USM, uh, a UMM USA habit isn't going to cost you your nursing license. You won't feel like crap the next morning either. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And and that subject's going to come up again later. So let me tell you, just put a pin in that. The drug habit or UMM? Uh, Tools. Uh, Will Fusco. Will is an American expat living near uh, Osaka, Japan. We've conversed a little bit online, but uh, he got a question in to me. So Uh, first, he was looking for an online community. Because everybody's been trying to do that, and it's it's uh, being in Japan has been kind of kind of tough for him. So we we put him onto a few uh, Facebook and some some other ideas. I, I thought maybe some of the English speaking countries in his hemisphere, uh, New Zealand and Australia, primarily would would might might offer him something he could do real time from his geography, right. being in Japan. Uh, as opposed to, you know, somebody back, back home in the United States or even the UK is going to be a pretty big time difference for him. And that's not going to work out as well. Might work out. I don't know. Uh, but he was wondering if there's any like Panzer track type magazines for Soviet armor. He's got a, something in common with me. He's, he's a Soviet armor fan and Panzer tracks are, was, I guess they're still available. Somebody's publishing them still, uh, was a series of books authored by the late Tom Yentz. And uh, were illustrated the drawings by Hillary Doyle. So anybody mm-hmm. familiar with armor ought to know those names. There's nothing like that exactly for Soviet armor, but I, I got a couple of recommendations. There's a Russian periodical. I don't even know if they're still in print, but they're available on and off again online, uh, eBay and some other places called Military Chronicle. And the Military Chronicle series, uh, they have a lot of titles that are single single subject, like T-40 light tanks or SU-85 or SU-122 or late or early. I've got one. It's a early versions of the uh, T-3485. So that's something that'll help you out. Now they're Russian language with, with, uh, with English captions. If you, if you make the point to make sure you look for that, because there's, they're all Russian editions as well, but drawing sketches and photos kind of have no language barrier. So those are always worthwhile. Even if uh, you can't read the text a lot of times, uh, and also out of Germany, there's a, a publisher called Tankograd, yeah. and they've got a lot. Of, they've got a lot of uh, single single subject books as well. Um, a lot of paperbacks. There's like a two volume on the KV one and then a single volume on KV two. 
if you like post-war, there's a T62 book, a P76 book, and they just released a hardbound book on the T34 model 1940, singularly that version only. He draws a lot on wartime German snapshots, which is you're going to see a lot of photographs you've never seen before in those books. So highly recommend those. And they're, they're fairly affordable. So check those out, Will. Uh, and then uh, Jesse Escobedo out of Rockville, Maryland. Don't go back to Rockville, Scott Gentry. He'll get that reference. <laughs> Uh, an- another UMM plug, actually, well, not a plug, but he he was uh, looking around on there and UMM actually offers a fender bender type PE tool that I didn't realize they sold. Yeah, I, th- I think I knew that. I think I was aware of it, but it didn't pop up in my memory until you mentioned it. Now, I looked at it when he brought it up and it's a little shorter than the fender bender, which may make f- like forming the lip on like a Panzer three fender not possible on that tool, but it's, it's worth looking up. And when I say a fender bender tool, it's, it's made like a shop, a machine shop bending break as opposed to the, the clamp and bend with the blade type photo etch tools. Right. So worth, worth checking out. UMM's worth checking out anyway. Absolutely. Well, we're going to keep going here. We got a lot of feedback from our Kentucky Dave in the shelf of doom episode. So <laughs> my shame knows no bounds. Well, somebody mentioned maybe we should have titled it that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ian McCauley, our our good friend up in uh, Ottawa, has uh, sent some uh, information along these lines, and he's kind of got four categories for the Shelf of Doom. Uh, The first one being kits I hated or unsuitable to give away. Yeah. Uh, These are kits he fought tooth and nail and just, just seriously messed up on, and they get bent the night before the garbage runs, so they're gone. So Yep. He never has, a, never has a chance to retrieve them out of the garbage can. Uh, category two, kits that I should have never started. <laughs> yeah. Now, this this one will resonate with you because they were subjects he was not passionate about. They were kits that he started as part of group builds and never finished them. O- older older kits superseded by far superior oh, kits. God, yes. Et cetera, et cetera. So he gave up these lock, stock, and barrel, gave these kits away. Some of them are getting finished, but he's not doing it. I feel your pain. That that so describes my experience. It's not funny. Then he's got kits. He doesn't know what happened. He just lost his mojo, but wants to finish them someday. Yeah. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's not parting with these. He, he will resume work at some point. Just packs them up in the box and puts them away and they sit a while. And finally, kits that simply re-examining them after a period of time rekindled the mojo. So these are kits he shelved for a little while and then just broke it out, took a look at it and said, hmm. I think I'll finish that. Now he credits us to a shelf of doom recovery. He had a trumpeter KV two project he had shelved and now it's on the f- near the finish line. So all right. Armor and Russian. All right. We got to take credit. We're influencers, man. We're going yeah. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Right. Tim Cavalier. He doesn't have a shelf of doom. He has an aisle of incomplete models. <laughs> Is that like the Island of Misfit Toys, only different? Uh, that's that's exactly what I was thinking, to reference the old Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer cartoon. Yeah, you, you folks in Australia probably don't get that reference. Uh, they might, I don't know. American TV, unfortunately, gets piped everywhere. You, you know what? You'll have to go on YouTube. You'll have to find that clip, because I guarantee you it's on YouTube, and you'll have to stick it in the show notes. Tim says, have a goal, have a plan, or make a plan and be accountable. Uh, you know, I get, this is this is like some of the motivational stuff at work. Actually. Yeah. 
That's right. Have a goal. Make it simple, specific, and doable. I have want to complete three models off the shelf of Doom in a month. That's bold. God, yeah. Don't be vague or unrealistic. <laughs> I would argue that's unrealistic, but maybe not for Tim. Yeah, for you and me. Make a plan out of those three. Pick just one and write up what you need to do in simple bite-sized steps. So, uh, that makes sense. And they give you a roadmap to follow to get it done and be accountable. Show Mike or another model your plan. So he's 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 pointing this at you, Dave. Yeah, well, th- thank you. I appreciate that. Well, Mike, it's actually kind of funny that you remember the list you and I used to exchange of models we want to build in the upcoming year. We may revisit that back uh, in January. I think that would be an awesome thing to do for our New Year's episode. I, I absolutely do as well. But that is the thing. We used to exchange these lists with each other. And then we would get the other person's input on it. And it did kind of not hold you accountable, but was somewhat inspirational. And you got some good feedback when we did that. So I don't think that's completely a bad plan. The other thing he mentioned about bite-sized pieces, I do think some of the most successful modelers I know approach models not as models but or not as a model, but a series of models that each particular model, they approach each subsection as a kit unto itself. And, and I think that works for a lot of people. You've been listening to John bias. No, I, 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 I've heard the PPP episode, but I have not, I have not gone and listened to that yet. All right. He's got a, He's got a video out there on YouTube that's essentially, you know, how to get basically how to get your mojo back. And he talks about approaching complex models as a series of smaller models and just just building the cockpit, just building the running gear, et cetera. So it's exactly what you just said. Yeah. So that's kind of why I asked. Okay. Finally, Stephen Lee from Washington, D.C. Regarding reasons to put kit on the shelf of doom, my number one reason is this project has become or will be too much work. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. You bite off more than you can chew. Yeah, that's happened. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And then he also mentions that uh, research and reference paralysis is unrelatable to him, uh, which is interesting. God, you know, he doesn't build that way, but man, that that will that will bring me to a screeching halt. See the KV eighty five, right? Exactly. See the KV eighty five, and then and then the kits I was waiting on, they should have had research paralysis, but they chose to forge ahead. Well, that is the uh, listener mail for the last two weeks. That's a lot. Thanks, everybody. That's good. And, and, you know, like I said, uh, all joking aside, one of the big reasons Mike and I started doing this is the fact that to help us with our own modeling mojo. And I've got to tell you guys that all of your input and all of the interaction on the Facebook page, et cetera, really does help. I mean, it's especially in the time of COVID when we, you know, we're not going to regular club meetings and stuff like that. This is like having another club family and and it's really been helpful. If you enjoy the podcast, we would appreciate it if you'd uh, at the end of this episode, go to whatever podcasting app you're doing, uh, you're using and put in a five-star rating to help the algorithm drive uh, uh, the visibility of our podcast up. We've been getting more and more listeners each time, and uh, we really appreciate that. And tell a friend, if you listen to us and you enjoy it, 
tell some tell one of your modeling buddies, particularly one that's not into listening to podcasts yet. Turn them on to it. Help them download a podcasting app on their phone and and subscribe to our podcast and uh, get them turned on to us because there's nothing like a personal recommendation. And if you need more podcasts, if we're not putting it out quick enough for you guys, please tune into our, our fellow podcast and our pioneer podcast. Cause we certainly weren't the first first, but uh scale model podcast out of Canada is up to episode 54. We finally get to part two from Katie, the uh, movie industry model builder. And that's, that's really interesting what she's got to say. Plastic Posse podcast rolls in at episode five and I just mentioned it already, but I'll mention it again. They have a great conversation with John Bias. Uh, I encourage you to listen to their episode and then follow their links on to John Bias's Facebook page, not his Facebook page, his YouTube channel. And uh, check out what's John, not just the builds. I recommend you go to his deep dive videos and uh, listen to John Bias, the motivational speaker. Really, really good stuff. And finally, On the Bench is up to episode 95, and they got Will Pattison back again for part two on tools. Give the Aussies a listen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And after you've done that, if you're not a member of your national IPMS chapter, be it IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, or whatever country you're in listening to us, please consider joining. IPMS is a great organization. And the national chapters really do a whole lot and a whole lot that you don't realize to keep the local modeling chapters alive and uh, insured in the case of IPMS USA and keep them from stepping on each other's contest dates. It's a great organization. The The membership fee is not very expensive. Throw them a little bit of money. Uh, you get a great magazine. You'll really enjoy it. So please go and join your local IPM, your national IPMS chapter. Well, to do a little uh, other cleanup here, we encourage you to check out RightCon. RightCon is a virtual contest being put on by the uh, the Dayton IPMS chapter. Uh, it's a virtual event in lieu of the IPMS Region Four convention, which. Uh, is the same region uh, Military Modelers Club of Louisville's in and would have been highly attended, no doubt. Absolutely. Uh, check those guys out at at www.rightcon.com. And it's, it's right, W-R-I-G-H-T, like Wright Brothers. Uh, give that a look and think about participating. It's being organized like a, like a regular IPMS contest, so we'll see how it goes. Yep. And then finally, before the end of the month, please cast please cast your votes for the Golden Sprue Awards. Uh, you have until the end of the end of October to do that. Warren Sterrett would greatly appreciate as much per- participation as he can get. And then finally, uh, I want to make our listeners aware of uh, a PayPal link we have on the Plastic Model Mojo website. We had intended to make reference to that a little later, maybe even first of the year, but a couple of our regular listeners have found it and asked about it. There's a PayPal link in the upper right corner. It's a little heart. If uh, you like our podcast and you want to help us along a little bit financially, we'd appreciate it. We're certainly not in it for the money, but there are expenses incurred to do this for you guys. And we're having fun, but it's still, still an expense. If you're inclined to, to donate to the show, you can find that you can find that link at the at the Plastic Model Mojo website, or even if you open up an episode from the from the website player, the show notes defaults to that link. We'd appreciate it. 
Absolutely. Thanks to those who've already found it and have and have already gave us gave us a, a donation. We we appreciate it very much. Thank you. Well, it's not hugely expensive to do what we're doing. There are expenses, and we're trying to uh, get better as we go along. We're hoping once model contests resume that we'll actually be able to do some remote work, and that required some equipment. So uh, we appreciate anybody throwing a throwing a few spare bucks our way. That was uh, very nice of the people who've done so. It's time for countdown to Vegas, Dave. Having having had no national this year, I cannot tell you how anxious I am for Vegas. Well, you're gonna have to hold your water because at the time of this recording, the 2021 IPMS National Convention is 303 days away. Ugh. So everybody, everybody, get building. It's gonna be here before you know it. Yeah. And hopefully, this COVID thing will be a memory by then, or almost, and we can all have a little fun again. Vegas is the place to do it, baby. Before we get into this one too deep, uh, I must say that since we started the Countdown to Vegas segment, I have had Bob's name wrong the entire time. <laughs> uh, I, I absolutely love this. Having killed off, uh, what's his name, Mark Preschetti, I am glad that now uh, I'm not the only one to, to do this to somebody. Bob's last name is not Provado. His name is Lomasaro, and my name is Mud. <laughs> He was he, he was very very generous and and very had a great sense of humor about that. Well, my apology, Bob. So let's get on to it. Bob and Joe Portia and their band of scale model missionaries have been traveling the region at large, proselytizing the virtues of supporting the IPMS National Convention. Dave, yep, that's the way to do it. Uh, they've been hitting up hobby shops in a wide range, well, excuse me, a wide radius of Las Vegas to garner support and disseminate information for the show, trying to get everybody going there. And there's several large population centers within a modest or reasonable drive of Las Vegas, Los Angeles being the primary one. Yeah. There's some businesses they would like to thank for their cooperation thus far. Their most recent trip was to uh, to California. So all these are in California. They'd like to recognize the the Rare Plane Detective in Cathedral City, Hobby Town in Corona, Military Hobbies in Orange, Brookhurst Hobbies in Buena Park, and Pegasus Hobbies in Montclair. And again, all these are in California. It's, there's a couple of those in there that are, are uh, some really old businesses. Rare Plane Detective and Brookhurst Hobbies have been around for a long, long time. I have been to several of those, including Rare Plane Detective and, and Brookhurst. Now, a prior trip, they went to Andy's Hobby Headquarters and the Hobby Bench in in the greater Phoenix, Arizona area, and Hobby Depot in Tempe. And they also mentioned that Hobby Town USA in both Fresno and Modesto, California are also displaying posters and flyers. So they would like to thank all those those hobby shops for their their uh, support for the IPMS National Convention because there's going to be a lot of people coming from both those locations to the show. There's going to be lots of people coming from everywhere to this show. I, I mean, I cannot tell you the buildup of anticipation that I'm getting from people I interact with. So Vegas is a great choice. Their future trips include San Diego next and then uh, Western Los Angeles. So I'll be curious to see what shops come out of those two groups. But uh, they've been driving around all over the uh, Southwest United States, uh, listening to podcasts and uh, handing out flyers. So. Good on them. 
Well, hopefully we can provide them a little content to get them along their way. Let's hope so. So, Mike, uh, I, I almost don't have to ask for the purposes of anybody who regularly goes to our Facebook page, but what's uh, what's uh, been going on on your bench? A lot has been going on on my bench. My little nostalgia build, my Airfix 40mm Bofors anti-aircraft gun and Morris 4x6 or 6x4 tractor are nearly complete. Man, the finish line is in sight. They look great. Uh, I tell you, all the weathering is done, and I am so pleased with the way it came out. That one picture I posted of the two together, I, I almost don't believe it's my model, to be honest. Yeah. It, that that really was looking like I wanted it and hoped it would look. And I've man- I think I've managed to get a lot out of that old kit. Now, you know, well, it's got some fidel- fidelity of scale problems, but, you know, a nice paint job goes a long way. And, and a, a clean build and a nice paint job, I think uh, – my my goal was to was to finish that more or less out of the box and try to get the model I wanted to build when I was twelve, and I think I've <laughs> succeeded. Absolutely, it looks it looks fantastic. So, is that the only thing you've been working on? Uh, no, but before we get away from that one, I I kind of had to back away from the Morris a little bit because uh, I was trying to get the the windshield glass done, and my my initial plan of individual glass for the left and right side of the windscreen kind of fell on the sword. So I had to come up with a plan B and then I got into plan B and plan B involves printing some templates on the printer upstairs and we ran out of ink (laughs) and I started getting frustrated. So I kind of, kind of shelved that for a little bit, but uh, I got, I got printer ink again and I'm ready to, ready to hit that again this weekend. So man, I'm thinking, I'm thinking this weekend that model's going to get done. Oh, can't wait. Can't wait. But uh, you make a good point there, though. When you get frustrated, sometimes you just have to walk away. Uh, Not to quote Top Gun, but you don't want to push a bad position. And sometimes, this happens to me particularly with airbrushing sometimes. I'm doing everything exactly like I've done before, and the airbrush just isn't performing. And... It's just not your day. Walk away from it. Go do something else uh, rather than ruin the project you're working on. Well, you asked what else I was working on. The yes. E16 Paul is, has actually moved forward again. I've mated the fuselage halves together, and I'm working on the primary seam for the entire build, really, to be honest. This is kind of an old-school cockpit cockpit assembly. You got to – everything's trapped between the two halves. There's no module. There's no cockpit right. sub-assembly. So – uh, the first thing I did was uh, get the uh, instrument panel and the uh, the radio deck for the rear rear seat into position. Uh, I glued those to one side of the fuselage and then got got the halves together temporarily and let those set up. Being a Japanese aircraft, this thing has the typical really fat wing root on it, like a lot of their planes had, which allows the cockpit right. floor to be inserted after the after the fact. So I can uh, work on this seam until I'm happy with it and then slip the, slip the, uh, the cockpit floor in with the seats and the control stick in and, uh, be good to go after that. Now, each step now is a learning experience or, or a relearning experience, fuselage assembly and canopy work and all that's coming next. So b- baby steps. Well, I'm glad to see it moving forward because 70 second scale is God's one true scale. Well, that's what you always say. So what have you been working on? Well, um, as a matter of fact, I have, Four active projects. Uh, the M30 
uh, is almost ready to paint. Uh, I just have to finish assembling the trails. Those are coming along, but uh, again, like a lot of things with this kit, Trumpeter has, uh, their instructions are not exactly clear and their build order is not exactly the best. Um, I will have a lot to say when this kit is done about Trumpeter, their instructions and, and their build order. But the as soon as I get the trails done, uh, I've already got the wheels painted. As soon as I get the trails done, the main assemblies of the gun will be painted, and then it's off to uh, night shift land. I'm going to go back through all his videos time and again and try and pick up some of some of the techniques he's using to uh, uh, to paint and weather the models because I really like what he does. Uh, speaking of night shift, uh, the bibber, after sitting for several months uh, basically in limbo because I was too much of a coward to move forward on it, I bit the bullet and started to do uh, chipping. Again, I went to the night shift video and watched a couple of his videos on on chipping, and he's got actually got a couple of them on doing it in 70-second scale. Some of the chipping I did, I like. Some of the chipping I did, I did not like because I got way too sloppy. It is amazing how precise he is in his videos, and after looking at what I did, I realized I was way too sloppy, so I took probably three quarters of the chipping back off the model. And now I am starting the second pass at it. But this is a learning model. The whole point of this thing was to do stuff I haven't done before. Um, I miscredited last episode a comment uh, I credited John Vic, uh, Vitkus, but it's actually uh, uh, Tim Nelson out in Seattle who said, you know, a lot of people are waiting to build a certain model till they get better. And what's your plan for getting better? The whole point of this bibber is to get better. So even though I had to, to do a little negative modeling and taking that chipping off, I'm, I, I don't feel as bad about it as I might have. The mosquito is moving along. Uh, this is the, uh, uh, group build that I got sucked into that I am hoping does not turn into a shelf of doom project. Uh, but so far, I'm really enthused about it. Uh, I managed to figure out exactly what aircraft I'm going to build. Uh, I did a blog post on it. If, uh, if anybody visits my blog, they'll see there's a 105 squadron aircraft that, uh, uh, participated in a raid on the Gestapo headquarters in Oslo. And it was the first public acknowledgement of the existence of the Mosquito by the British press was after after that raid. And so uh, with the help of some guys at 72nd Scale Forum, I got a lot of good information and uh, decided what I was going to build. My, my bench is, is moving along, but I keep hopping back and forth between projects. The only problem of doing that, as opposed to what you've been doing by focusing on the Bofors, is that while I'm making a lot of progress, it's not as, a, it's not as dramatic and visible as the project on your Bofors. So I'm hoping that in the next 
two weeks before the next episode, I'll have some some real dramatic progress to show. Well, back to the uh, the bibber. What did you, what did you do the chipping with? Is allowing you to take it off. Okay, I did not do it the way Night Shift did it because I painted the model with uh, enamels rather than acrylics. The two months that I sat there looking at the model and being too much of a coward to move forward on it, I did contemplate what I was going to do. I had two choices. I could either do what Night Shift does and use acrylics, but then I would have to match the paint to the enamel paint I was already using, or I could use enamel paint. And I ultimately decided to use enamel paint. So what I did to the bibber was I did it, I gave it a coat of future, which toned down the 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 airbrush contrast that I had put on the model before and also provided a barrier that I could then put the enamel chipping over. And because I had put down that acrylic barrier with the future, the clear gloss, uh, clear gloss acrylic, I was able to, when I decided there were areas I didn't like, take a little denatured alcohol on a on a Q tip, a pointed Q tip, dip it, roll roll the uh, Q tip on my jeans so that it wasn't quite as soaked with denatured alcohol, and then just rub it back and forth across the enamel paint. The enamel paint came off without affecting the uh, the uh, acrylic uh, future undercoat. So I was able to pull uh, um, almost all of it back off. Yeah, I was I was curious because the night shift videos are always using acrylics for chipping, and there is there's no taking those off. I know, I know. This is the one advantage to this. Now there are disadvantages to it. I think the acrylics are much more forgiving in some respects and much easier to control because I I'm pretty sure that part of my problem was well I know part of my problem was that I had my chipping mixture a little too thin and that caused it to spread out on me more than I had intended it to made the chip made the whole for 70 second scale, as, as Night Shift points out, these chips need to be tiny. I realized after I was done with the se- the first half of the chipping that I did, I actually was pretty pleased with. But I think I overthinned the chipping paint that I was using in the second half, and and it, it spread too much on me. It made it too big. It made it diffuse. It didn't make it tight. So I didn't like it. This is a learning experience. I sacked up and said, you know what, let's, instead of just ignoring it, let's go back and learn some. And you know what, if, if, if I mess it up, I mess it up, but I'm learning, I'm trying something new. So I kind of feel good about that. I will admit. Oh, one last question. How's that ZIS2 coming? It's not. I like poking you with that one <laughs> on that one. Cause I really <laughs> do want, I really do want to see that one finish. Well, I do too, but I got to, I got to, I got to clear the bench. I hear you. It's my, it's going to be my encore for my current projects. Okay. All right. Well, speaking of projects, uh, what have you seen out there that's new that, uh, either inspired you or uninspired you as the case may be? We'll go back and forth as usual here, but my, my, 
biggest fave for this episode is Mini Art's Austin Armored Car. It's a World War One armored car with the, the twin turret barrels yeah. on the sides and poking out the top. Really, really neat. Uh, I'm starting to get really tempted by some of these because they just have so much weathering potential. This one may be the one I actually buy. This one is a 1918 Western Front kind of thing. So it's it's kind of the, the most interesting to me anyway, part of First World War theater. Uh, just a really, a really neat looking model. So I look forward to maybe, maybe buying this one, actually. I, I saw that one and I thought that was way cool uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I love armored cars. And two, on YouTube, there's a series that I think maybe British Path put out called The, the Great War. And it is the, the World War One week by week. And they did this from like 2016 or, or 2014 to 2018. They did it on the anniversary. And I've been going through the YouTube episodes and it's gotten me more and more interested in World War One. So uh, Armored Car, World War One, way cool. Uh, which leads me to my ba- uh, my first fave of the of the episode, which is Das Work has announced a seventy second scale World War One U boat, uh, a U nine U boat, and this hits all the pleasure centers. Uh, one, I love subs, and particularly seventy second scale subs. I've got a bunch of the kits. Now, the only two World War One seventy-second scale, or uh, the only seventy-second scale subs I have built are the Bibber, and I did a Japanese suicide torpedo, uh, one-man suicide torpedo, uh, the Kaiten. So the subs I've built so far are much smaller than the ones I have in kit form, but I really want to build them. I think that. 72nd scale subs are really cool and World War One subs, German World War One subs almost have a steampunk quality to them. And I, I this one as soon as I saw the announcement, this one this one sent the tingles all up and down the spine. So that's almost a sure buy as soon as it comes out. Well, I'm I may be tempted as well. I was looking at the stats on it. It's it's like eight hundred and change millimeters long, so it's it's yeah, it's not terribly big, right? Really. It's not. No, not uh, not compared to a World War II U boat. You saw it. I, I sent you the link to the to the CAD, and it's yeah. Oh my. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> no. I know, baby. <laughs> and, and they've got a book to go with it. Yeah. Did you see that? Yes. I mean, it just, it hits every pleasure center there is in my model. It's it's as if Das Work went into my brain at night and said, exactly what could we release that would hit all of, all of the, all of David's, all of David's modeling pleasure centers. And that, that was it. And hey, maybe we'll have to have a U9 challenge build. We might have to. We may both end yeah. up with one of those. I got a feeling. Absolutely. My next one is uh, from a company called FC Model Trends. And this is more of a general kind of recognition. This is a company who's making a lot of 3D printed upgrades for armor models, maybe other stuff, but that's where I've been 
getting it from. And for me, that's kind of a big thing because 3D printed, I have to admit, a lot of the stuff I've seen, it's just being the kind of old school modeler I tend to be, it's to some degree, it's like, man, is this a cop out? Is this, is this too easy? But then I fall back on, you know, you got to learn to use the CAD to draw this stuff. So there's, there's a lot to learn there. So that's kind of not really fair. But anyway, I've kind of always had those thoughts first when seeing something, but, but they're making a lot of, of detail bits for for armor kits, and they, they finally have my attention because they've got some bits for uh, World War II Soviet armor. They've got a, a set that's all the uh, the handles and grab irons and things for the various equipment on a Soviet tank, all the Pioneer equipment, tool clasps, and that kind of thing. And yep. they've also are 3D printing intake grills because a, a lot of these tanks, actually the mesh is woven, right? Yeah. And you, you can't get that with a photo etched engine, engine mesh. So I'm really curious what these look like. Cause they've, they've got one for like the, the T40 light tank and they've got one for the, uh, the two intake meshes on a, a IS2 and they've got one for T34 as well. So I'm really curious what these look like. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I got a feeling I'm going to, I'm going to vote with my wallet, see what this is all about. I see an order in your future. I'm sure you do. Got another one? (laughs) Yes, I do. Um, The next one is in 72nd scale again, IBG company out of, I think the Ukraine. Poland. You're right. IBG is Poland. I apologize. IBG, a company out of Poland. Uh, has done a lot of armored kits, uh, both armor and soft skins. And they recently announced a Bedford QL refueler. This is the classic British Bedford truck with the refueler tank on the back that was used at uh, uh, RAF bases throughout middle and later World War II. Uh, it is a piece of equipment that I don't think anybody else has modeled previously. It really would go a long way for anybody who wants to do a, a, an RAF base, put some, some field equipment with it. So it was really nice to see it announced. They had done a lot of the other Bedford trucks, and so it was almost inevitable that they were going to do this. But I'm glad we finally seen it announced and can't wait for it because it'll be a, a great addition. How about you? Well, I've got I've got another 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 favorite, uh Alpine Miniatures. Oh, I love those folks. Yeah, a couple of new uh Soviet tank crew figures. Alpine miniatures is operated by uh now this is Korean, so it's a little tough. Um Tasong Hamza. Yeah. I think is close to close to the right pronunciation are very skilled sculptor. And these figures are really nice and they're really, really well researched. Uh, he's done a great job. Now I collaborated with him on his 16th scale Soviet tank crewman. Actually, I probably ought to contact him again and give him a little, little credit on these. These are really, really nice figures and I'm, I'm going to buy both of these. No doubt about it. Yeah. You got, yeah. you got another fave? Well, um, I've got one more that I was going to mention only because of you. A company, I think they're out of Germany, Hauler, has announced a release of a photo etch detail and conversion set in 72nd scale for the BM1316 
multiple launch rocket system. Oh, man. Yeah. Can you imagine that in 70-second scale photo etch? Yeah, I could imagine that. I think I actually saw that, but I didn't, I didn't look too hard because I, I knew where I was going to go. <laughs> yeah. There. I, I, ju- I mean, it's a beautiful piece of photo etch, or actually a couple of pieces of photo etch, but wow. Uh, it's made for the ICM 70-second scale uh, truck kit of the BM13-16. You know, there are people who build that dozer with all that photo etch armor yeah. around it. And and I admire those people. I admire anybody who attempts this thing because, man, that's a lot of photo etch. And it's small, too. Yeah, small photo etch. So how about you? Uh, we're into yawn, yawn territory now. Uh-oh, I don't have a yawn, so, so make this one count. Well, I could go with Hobby Boss, but I won't. <laughs> Those poor people. Well, they had a World War II Soviet release, but it was something somebody else already beat to death. So it wasn't a BT-5. So I guess I did go there with Hobby Boss, but that's all okay. I'm going to say. Uh, my my yawn is uh, actually Ammo by Mega Menes. Uh-oh. What's this about? They have a new line of dry brush paint. Um. You're going to you're going to have to explain to me what dry brush paint is. I I guess it's a really really thick paint. I I really don't know, but uh, that's neither here nor there. In this war to stay relevant between this company and one other in particular and to a lesser degree maybe Vallejo. This has come full circle now. By the current players in this field, they have all panned dry brushing as a technique as either unrealistic at best or at worst lazy. And I really find this release ironic, if not a bit humorous that now the panners are marketing a product to do a technique that they didn't like seven, eight, 10 years ago. I think, I just think it's funny. They, they may be a great product. And if you like dry brushing, these may be the bomb, man. This may be the best thing since sliced bread, but I just, just, in the context of, of how this all came about in my modeling journey and, and, you know, the reason why I got out of the hobby because all these techniques changed and what I was doing was passe. I just, I just think this is really, really funny. (laughs) That is, well, in theory, my understanding of it is basically any paint can be dry brush paint. It's a technique, not a, paint formulation now admittedly you can some paint is easier to dry brush than others but still yeah it is it is high humor that the folks who panned everybody who was doing dry brushing at the time would come back around to releasing uh dry brush paint you kind of wonder if maybe they've run out of uh stuff to do I don't know. Now these are these companies have good products. We both use them. Everybody oh, listening the uses time. them to some degree, and I just I, I don't understand this one. I just I just thought it was funny. <laughs> it <laughs> is. I I missed that one, and you're right. It is funny. Well, if we're done with that, our special segment tonight is a little little lighthearted. Breaking your wallet and your will. We've got a little commentary here about the ups and downs of the uh, secondary kit market hobby market, if you will. 
And this again comes from an email we got from our listener, Stephen Lee. And it was prompted by a statement we made on the show a while back about a seller on eBay who was parting out kits and selling single sprues on eBay. Which is weird to me. Well, I guess he thought it was too. We'll, we'll, I got his email kind of parsed out here to make this a little easier. For okay. parted out kits, uh, uh, Stephen says, I've always chalked up the sale of separate sprues to inept marketing by well-intended non-modeler pickers and fortune seekers who think all hobby stuff is more or less the same, very valuable, and that they're buyers for everything, including overpriced individual kit sprues. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you got any thoughts on this? Because you, you've 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 thought we needed to expound on this a little bit in the past. Uh, what do you think about that? I was unfamiliar with this phenomenon until you and and he raised this. I would never have imagined that this market even exists. I would never have thought that there's enough of a market to sustain a market, but apparently there is because there's more than one person doing this on eBay. It seems to me like in many cases, you can go out, if it's an older kit, you can go out and buy the whole kit for reasonably close to what you can buy for the the one sprue that, that they're offering. So... I, I find it fascinating from an economics point of view. Uh, and each individual sprue, there can't be that much margin on it. So when you take into account what eBay takes as a cut, what PayPal takes as a cut, I'm I'm amazed that there is enough enough profit left after all of the expense to make this worthwhile, especially when you consider the time and and effort required to list all of these and then to to mail them out and all of that stuff. It's fascinating to me from an economics standpoint. How about you? Well, I think you're probably coming from an aircraft-centric kind of viewpoint. Um, maybe that may be for an armor modeler. This makes a, this makes a little bit more sense. And I've actually bought something from the primary seller that's doing this on eBay. And the the reason I did is, is, you know, I've got all these projects and you, you probably do too. Most modelers do that. You're, you're kind of, you got in the back of your head and you're, you're kind of thinking about them as the, as the days, weeks, months, and even years sometimes progresses. Well, one of mine is I've got a, there's a particular early Hetzer I, I want to do. Uh, it's got a scheme on it I liked, and it's a pretty unique vehicle. Uh, it, it gets overdone, I think, in the modeling community a lot, but it's it's a popular subject. But anyway, the early Hetzer had, had, I can't remember if it had more bolts on the road wheels or less, but it's one or the other. So they're different than, than some of the other kits. Well, Academy released an early Hetzer in plastic, I want to base my model off the Tamiya Hetzer. So because a Hetzer doesn't have a lot of interchangeable parts, you know, there's not like, not like a T-34 where there's like all these factory versions, rebuilds, and 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 you can use a lot of the parts from the kit on other projects. The Hetzer's a little more limited. So I just bought the wheels. I bought enough wheels to do a model from this guy 
early Hetzer wheels from the Academy kit uh, to go with in my project accumulation for this, this future Hetzer project. Now, now yeah. another one I think is an interesting possibility is uh, Tamiya has released both the Hummel 150 millimeter self-propelled gun and, and the Nos, the Nosorn 88 millimeter uh, anti-tank versions. It's just, it's a very similar vehicle. They're not identical, but they're, they're pretty close. Uh, right. The, the, the Hummel is the later version with the, the double raised, uh, glacis plate for both the radio operator and the driver for my particular preference. I don't like that version. I like the one that has the, the flush hatch for the radio operator. And then the, uh, the kind of bulbous protrusion for the, for the driver. So if you wanted to do that version, you can go to this guy, eBay, this guy's eBay store and buy just the sprue that has the Nosorn upper hull plate. And you have to do a little bit of modification to it, but it gets you ninety percent of the way there, and just swap the two parts. Um, now with Tamiya, you can order those parts. I, I don't know how the prices compare, but but Tamiya USA is pretty good about it. Um, if you need Dragon parts or something like that, it gets a lot harder because you know I'm not going to say much about it, but go Google in the forums their uh, sprue replacement and customer service protocol, and you're going to find out that's not going to go go very well. I do think that you're right. There's a difference between aircraft and armor in that armor, because road wheels are such an integral part of armor modeling. And because there is a lot, I I think I did. Okay. Again, I'm not an armor guy, but I like the KV one. And I once did some research and I think I came up with at least five different versions of the KV-1 road wheels or road wheel combinations from photographs and all. So I can see road wheels being a particularly desirable single sprue item as opposed to something in an aircraft that's interchangeable between versions, because in general, that's not the case with aircraft. Now, if it was a T-34 subject, I would just buy the entire Dragon kit because there's going to be so much in in any of those kits that could be used later down the road. That'd be my take, but I, I, I can see this has a limited value that I can appreciate, but you know, they're not, they're not inexpensive for what you're getting. So I don't know. Maybe not for everybody. You know, it's it's like I said, the economics of it fascinate me. And I wonder if it actually can be done at a volume that really makes it worth somebody's time to do it. The next item in this kind of subject is uh, the, the bagged kit. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Stephen says, I'm also entertained by something that seems to be related to the part out, parted out kits for sale online, which is the bag kit, something you have mentioned on, on air previously. I've ended up with a few, both used and some new, notably from Eastern European manufacturers. Order a kit directly from Ace in the Ukraine, and you will receive a fat envelope with sprues, decals, and instructions, and a flattened box requiring bring your own staples. Finmill Mods of Finland doesn't even have a boxer instructions, just sprues and decals, but the price is right. And of course, unique subjects. Space and weight constraints are driving this trend, but I didn't realize I missed the box as much as I did until it was gone. 
Well, you know, I want to mention a take on this. And it started with Edward, and now several Eastern European manufacturers are doing this in the aircraft realm. They call them overtrees, where instead of buying the entire kit with instructions, decals, and the kit, they will sell you just the kit. No instructions, no decals, no box. And uh, people like Arma and Edward will offer these things as a package as well as individually. They'll sell you a complete kit with the box and the instructions and all, and then they'll give you a package deal where they'll sell you just the overtrees for another kit of the same model. Since I don't use kit decals a lot, almost all of the decals I ever put on are aftermarket decals. This has been a wonderful thing because, again, the price point that they sell Overtrees at compared to the complete kit is fantastic if you want to build more than one model of the same aircraft. And... I think that's probably a modern extension of the, you know, secondary market bagged kit thing. I've bought a few bag kits just because the price was right. And I don't need the box necessarily. Right. I've mentioned it before. A lot of this comes about because people run out of space and they ditch the boxes and they put them in bags and put them in filing cabinets, et cetera. Uh, And that's what happens after they sell their stash. It's all bagged. There's no boxes. Now, another thing you might remember about 10, 12 years ago, we were buying a lot of Eastern European kits out of Australia, actually. Yes. And uh, these were coming compressed down to the, the sprue bags with all the boxes compressed, unfolded at the bottom of the, of the shipping container, shipping box. Yeah. So certainly there's, there's, there's the uh, space and space savings because a lot of times postage isn't just weight. It's, it's box dimensions. Exactly. And I don't mind, uh, I remember those orders. Uh, Scott King would coordinate them. Skippy would coordinate them for our club. And we'd end up placing a four or $500 order out of Australia. And it would show up at his house and then get distributed among the club members. And yeah, all the sprues came packed and then the boxes were all empty and folded. You're right. It is not just weight, it is dimension, particularly the U.S. Postal Service uh, shipping rates are insane now. And if you can fit something into a, uh, a bubble-wrapped envelope as opposed to shipping it in a box, you can, it can make a significant difference in shipping costs. So it makes a lot of sense to me. Again, especially somebody who doesn't use kit decals often, uh, a bagged kit for me meets my needs for a lot of a lot of things. Especially the, like I said, the overtrees uh, that are releases of new kits anyway. Well, next on Stephen's list is condition. We're buying secondary market. I mean, not a primary retail outlet either. Not a brick and mortar right. hobby shop or a a dedicated website like Sprue Brothers or something like that. Now there's, there's established businesses selling on eBay or Amazon. I, I still 
for this for the sake of this discussion, those are still secondary because you, it's hard to differentiate really. Uh, sure. So eBay and Amazon, the various classifieds on the forums. There's Facebook pages, Facebook Marketplace, clubs and shows and and swap meet, you know, vendor vendor deals. I buy a lot from all those venues, to be yeah. honest. Well, I, I will tell you that I like going again, another reason that this COVID thing sucks out loud and we don't get to go to shows is that I do a lot of purchasing of items from vendors at shows who are not primary marketers of new kits, like an extension of a brick and mortar, but are, you know, they, they buy up collections and then sell them off and stuff like that. And the advantage to doing it at a show, in addition to, hey, I get to go to a show and hang out with all my modeling friends, is that you can actually see what you're getting and you don't have to worry about any postage cost. And again, with postage going up and up, uh, you know, that can be a significant savings. I can pick a model up. I can pick a, to me, a 72nd scale zero up all day long at, uh, at contests for $12 a pop. It's hard to do that on online in any form just simply because the postage cost and other other uh, you know associated costs drive the price up to the point where it's not really the same great deal that it is there at the show. Now, in one place I've been buying a, a not a lot, but a fair amount is uh the Facebook group Scale Model Graveyard. Yeah. And I I've you know I've got a bag kit from them. I've I've bought uh I've probably bought a half a dozen kits from them this year. That that venue. We actually talked about this in our T34 Facebook page episode, but I actually edited it out because I, I wanted to I want to present it in its proper context and I think this is probably it. That T34 group, they had a the the interest group in which is all, you know, technical information and then they spun the modeling group out separately to kind of separate it's related but a separate kind of discussion. You know, so they didn't have a lot of uh modeling discussion for this this other group that who uh was primarily primarily interested in the technical aspects of the dis, uh the discussion scale model graveyard i think might benefit from that philosophy because they have a a system where at a certain time of day on a certain day of the week it converts from a direct sales site to an auction site personally i find it confusing and i agree i, I I, I have to think for the for the moderators of that group, that creates a lot of work to police that stuff and to uh, to make sure folks are doing what they're supposed to do. I, I would recommend th- that they look into creating a, a a sister site that is all auctions all the time, and the other one is all direct sale all the time. Yeah, that would be fair. My my opinion is that would be an improvement for what they got going on. I completely agree. In fact, I've only bought one thing off of uh, scale model. Graveyard, and I've only sold one thing on off-scale model graveyard. And I'll be honest with you, my hesitancy to get into it deeper is the confusion that is caused by the aspect where it switches back and forth. If they had two separate Facebook groups, one all auction all the time and one direct sale all the time, I I'm pretty sure I would be on there a whole lot more. 
So if anyone from Scale Model Graveyard listens to this podcast and you like our idea or you don't like it, contact us. I, I'd be curious as to why it's run the way it is. Not that it's right or wrong. It's your guys' Facebook group. Do it how you want. Uh, obviously, I'm using it. I've bought several kits there, and I like it in general. But uh, I think that might be an improvement you should you, sh- you should consider. Going on, um, Stephen talks about condition of of items bought through the secondary market. Uh, he says portrayal of condition of kits for sale online is alternate alternately entertaining and exacerbating. Some sellers are extremely generous with the, with the description of shelfware. More accurate would be compressed over decades by the pressure of a dozen kit boxes stacked on top of it. <laughs> as, as a side, he, he says he used to laugh at from a smoke-free home. <laughs> yeah. Ha ha, it's a model. Why would why would that matter? Then he acquired several kits that were quite smoky. Um <laughs> that brings to mind the the when Mac passed away, the sale of his kits cuz Mac was a big smoker and boy does that make a huge difference. I bought several of things from his estate and I got a nicotine contact high just touching those models. Have you ever had a condition nightmare? No, I was actually about to say that I guess I have gotten incredibly lucky. I have never been dissatisfied with the condition of a model I received uh, in contrast to how it had been advertised. But then again, I'm not, you know, I just want the dang model. So I'm not overly picky about box condition or now again smoke free home does indeed make a difference i'm i'm here to tell you but even that i want if i'm buying it i want the kit and as long as i get the plastic and as long as it's not warped or broken i'm generally a pretty happy guy so i've i've been lucky how about you well, the the worst one I've gotten was actually one of the most recent ones. It was that Hasegawa Seagull kit I bought. The kit's fine. The decals I won't use, so they didn't matter. Right. The box had some old mildew on it. It was rather crushed, but you could see it in the photographs. I didn't care. I was looking for the cheapest one I could get. A true modeler. Yep. But but I understand yeah. his point, especially if you if you if you get a if you get a bad surprise. That's yeah. never fun. No, it isn't. You got anything else on this topic? Well, no, not particularly, other than the fact that, like I said, I look back on all of my transactions in the secondary and tertiary model markets. I'm pretty pleased by them. Again, I can't think of an instance where I got a kit that I had purchased and was in any way disappointed. I, well, 2008, 2009, uh, I a small portion of the giant stash of death that I own, a lot of it on eBay, but a lot of it direct sale on forums. And uh, as far as the transactions go from the seller side, I hate to sound like Pollyanna, but modelers are, as a group, a pretty good, good straight up bunch of guys. And Uh, You know, anytime there was even the slightest miscommunication, misunderstanding, misshipment, shipment problem, whatever, 
I've never had anything but great interactions. Maybe that's, maybe I've just gotten lucky. So, but I do think that I am glad the secondary and tertiary markets are out there because I think it is a great way for modelers, particularly if you don't have a, ho- a local hobby shop or, or something like that to support. It is a great way to build a stash. Not that building a stash is the greatest idea ever. But we all do it. So, you know, come on. But uh, I think it's a great way for you to pick up kits that have been out a while that are still modern, great kits that you want. Or let's say you want to do a nostalgia build of an Airfix 76 scale kit that you built as a kid when you were 12. The, The secondary market is a great place to pick up that kit for very little money as opposed to $20, which is what the, the modern version of the kit from the, from the uh, retailer will, will cost you. Well, I agree that what, you, what you're saying about the modelers in general, I'm, all, all my transactions have been pleasant for the most part. Now, in my other hobby, I do a lot of uh, business with folks who I don't know, and I'm, I'm kind of used to it. And I guess I may even have a knack for feeling out people who are maybe a little nefarious sketchy general generally in modeling that's not been the case and uh everybody likes finding a deal too that's always fun and that is the other thing that okay in your other hobby militaria you are not dealing with items that are of low value whereas even in in even in in modeling there you know you're not you're not talking about hundreds and thousands of dollars like you could be for a military item. You know, that I think takes a lot of the motive of unsavory people to dance around in the mark in the in the secondary model market. Yeah. There's just not enough money to be made in it. You'd be a low grade con to, to pull something off in this in this in this genre. <laughs> Yeah. Woohoo. I, I, I conned somebody out of 20 bucks. It just not. Yeah. And, and that isn't a, that is a great advantage to those of us who, who participate in the hobby. I don't think you have to worry about it as much. Well, if the listeners out there have a positive or negative experience buying in the secondary kit market, they'd like to share, send us a Facebook message or an email and uh, we'll talk about it, but interesting topic. Thanks, Stephen. We appreciate it. Absolutely. And and all you listeners out there, if you have ideas for topics, please email them. We love the interaction. And uh, you never know, your email end up may end up uh, getting turned into one of our special segments. So please continue to do so. So Mike, uh, looks like we're coming to the end. Do you have a shout out for the month? I do have a shout out. I want to go back and talk about Mr. Alex Restrepo a little bit. Oh, God. <laughs> Alex is a longtime MMCL member. That's the Military Modelers Club of Louisville. Alex recently retired from a successful career with the United Parcel Service, or UPS. For listeners might not know, but UPS has a, a very large hub and maintenance operation in Louisville, Kentucky, where uh, Alex has made his way up through the food chain over the years, working for UPS. He got sent away to Philadelphia for a while, I think. That's right. Yeah, he's, he's ended up... Uh traveling for them because of what he did does and what he did 
he went over to Germany. He went to the Philippines. He went to Philadelphia. He's He's been a number of places. But in the last few years, he re- relocated back to the Louisville area and has retired here. And uh, I want to say congratulations, Alex, to your retirement. Dave and I, along with the M- MMCL, are glad you're here with us in Louisville and not Philly or wherever else. And work's no longer an excuse, man. So let's see some models. Absolutely. In that regard, not to not to give Alex the 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 big head, but Alex is, and this is this is an example of, in my opinion, modelers in general. But Alex is the finest example of the species. Modelers are in general great guys, and if you wanted to find an example of that that you put in the dictionary to illustrate it you would not do better than Alex Restrepo. He really is just one of the nicest human beings on the planet. And, uh, you know, I would love to give him 40 kinds of crap uh, about just to, just to do so. But no, I can't do it. He's a, he, he's a great addition to our club, and we're lucky to have him. And retiring young. Yes. Kudos to that, man. I'm, I'm envious of that, to be honest. You got a shout out? Yes, I do. Um, I've mentioned from time to time on 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 the podcast uh, Scott King, or as we call him Skippy, one of the longtime members of MMCL. And Skippy's a a personal friend, uh, one of my modeling buddies. He ev- occasionally comes over to my house and we hang out in my basement and sip scotch and uh and don't model okay when we're sipping scotch not as much as maybe we should be but still it's an enjoyable time uh scott's dad uh, passed away this past week and his dad lived right behind him and so i got to know scott's dad as well as knowing skippy and he was a modeler in his own right although not plastic models uh, he was a Marine Corps veteran. Uh, I believe he was in the Korean War era. And he was a wire flight and radio control model guy. And um, he had one of the finest collections of old gas-powered flying model aircraft engines, including engines that date back into the 20s, 30s, and 40s that I've ever seen. And it was just fascinating to see. And after he retired, he would go with Scott and I to model contests and got to got to spend time with him, got to, to listen to his stories. And uh, just want to, first of all, tell Skippy that, uh, you know, our heart goes out to him. But also to point out to everybody, you know, take a little bit of time and spend some time with uh, the generation older than us. Because two things, one, we're going to be there sooner than you think. And two, there's a lot of neat stuff you can learn from those people. So uh, take advantage of that before that disappears. Skippy, just uh, thinking about you and... uh, Sorry you're going through what you're going through, but uh, good to, good to have gotten to know your dad. Proud to say that I had that opportunity. All right, Dave. Well, we're coming to the end here. Yeah, yeah. This uh, episode went a little longer than I thought it would. Well, not too bad. But anyway, as we always say, so many kits. So little time. See you later, man. Take it easy, man. We'll catch you next time.